for me, the real definition of midlife is when you realize that the roadrunner that you've been chasing all your life may not be what you wanted. You've just been chasing a roadrunner because that's what you do. And then you find out that you're actually not even a coyote. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Welcome, Mark. Thrilled to to have you on the inaugural version of Insert Human. To the audience, we were just talking about you know where this idea came from, and I think Mark and I share the belief that at the end of the day, you know, humanity is about our humanity and getting closer to the truth of us in order to realize whatever it is we're after. And Mark, as a human, has a wonderful story. And, and by the way, I was introduced to Mark by his nephew, Brady Sadler, who's also a dear friend of mine. And I think we all three sort of operate in a, in a similar circle, modality, whatever, very like-minded people. But Brady introduced you to Mark. Mark and I, actually, I think we first got together via, via your podcast. Is that, is that right? You've been on my podcast twice. Yeah. But that's how we first like really connected, right? Sure. So, so I would love you just to share as much of your story as you want to share in terms of how you got to where you got to, what you learned about yourself, why you did what you did. And then specifically in terms of the pot, your podcast, you've been doing it for 18 months. You've had over 200 interviews, which is stunning. You know, and which, what's the takeaway? Like if you had a, the, what's the cliff note version of either what you heard and what you, or what you said or shared that, that, you know, my audience would be able to benefit from. So first of all, congratulations. This is a, this is a long time coming. We've been, we've been pushing for this podcast for a while. Those of us who know and love you and support you know that you have something to say and something to bring to the Thank world. You. Thank so you. I'm really appreciative that you pulled the trigger and you're actually doing this. It's, it's really a little cool. scary. I have to say it's a little scary, but I'm trying. It's terrifying because, you know, we just talked about today is today as the day that we're recording on June 24th is the day that my 200th episode drops of the Mastering Midlife podcast. So the podcast is called Mastering Midlife, How to Thrive When the World Asks the Most of You. And the way that came into being was me being in the middle of writing the book, Mastering Midlife, How to Thrive When the World Asks the Most of You. And when, what, what was that a couple, when was that exactly? That was two years ago. Two years ago. Okay. Well, a little bit less than two years ago. Yeah. So I was, I, so I meditate every morning and I sit on my cushion and I journal and I, and I generally guide my day, guide my business, guide what I do by what comes out of that contemplation time. And I was planning on writing the book. I already had my keynote speech and I'm always doing workshops. So it's time to write the book. So I'm sitting on my cushion and the voice says, you need to start a podcast. And I said, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I sound like a male version of Fran Drescher, not doing a podcast. <laughs> So the next day I sit down, next morning, you're going to start a podcast. No, I'm not starting a podcast. I, do, I cannot stand the sound of my own voice and I really got nothing to say. I think you have a nice voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's the microphone. These microphones are amazing. Amazing. So, amazing. The, so the third morning I sit down and it's, uh, it, it's 
you're going to start a podcast. And I was like, that's not happening. But it's three mornings in a row. And I was actually scheduled to talk to our, to my nephew, who was a client at the time, and your friend Brady. And he happened to be partners in a podcasting company. And, you know, he's king of all media. So I, I said, you know, Brady, it keeps coming up that I should start a podcast. And he's like, yeah, absolutely, you should start a podcast. Absolutely. I got people to introduce you to and, and they'll help you get it off the ground and all that. And then next thing I know, I'm starting a podcast. It's called Mastering Midlife. The book's on hold. We do the first 10 episodes because that's how you start a podcast. And well, three episodes a week for a year and a half comes out to 200 episodes. It's one of those things that, you know, you know, you're committed in hindsight when you show up, suit up every single week and do what you need to do. And then the Friday podcasts are me just speaking extemporaneously. Right. Uh, Oh, no script, no, no preparation. Oh, well, I I usually have an idea. I usually have something, something that I want to say or something that happened that week or something that I teach in a workshop. So a little background about me, I started out kind of homeless, a drug addict, alcoholic, pretty much zeros on the counters of life skills. And I once went to a workshop and the person said, you know, on a scale of one to 10, your life skills are a negative two. <gasps> I was so insulted. Now, of course, I was a hundred, you know, like I drank every day. I did Coke every day and I <laughs> could barely wait, keep myself wait, was going. was that the 80s? That was, uh, yes, that was the 80s. Yes, it was. That was the time. That was definitely the 80s. So I got, I got sober in uh, 1989. Congratulations. I came to Washington, D.C. So I've been sober 30 years. And my brother actually got me into AA and all that. And I, got, I you know, wound up getting a college education in my 30s, getting married, having kids. The, the, short, the story that I tell new prospects sometimes when I'm in their office and they say, you know, tell me your story, Mark. And I'm like, well, you know, I was, when, when I was 28 years old, I was homeless and living in my truck. Six years later, I was a millionaire driving a Lexus convertible. I'm basically a short Jewish Tony Robbins. Uh, and that, <laughs> that usually gets them. So the voice like Fran Drescher. Right. That, that just gets them going. So what happened was I, you know, I, I waited tables. I went to college. Well, I got myself a job as a sales guy. Now I'm really, really shy and I don't like to bother people, but I didn't really have any skills that I knew of and became a sales guy. And long story short, I was really good at it. Uh, I was really good at connecting with people, really good with connecting with people. Technology sales, right? And so I got into technology sales and, you know, each job was better. And I, I was just recounting my career and I was with the four fastest growing Silicon Valley companies in the history of Silicon Valley. That's my resume. And wow. uh, so I was a startup by design guy. or by serendipity? Like how by, seren- by serendipity because Cisco was, was at the time the fastest growing company in Silicon Valley history. And they turned me down. They said, I didn't have the chops and I didn't have the experience. The next company was a, call, a company called Network Appliance. It's a storage company. And I talked myself into a job and I just was actually looking for my passport. And I found the cover letter that I put to the hiring manager that said, I know I don't have the experience, but I'm your guy. I have to have this job. I was terrified every day of my life. But I made, you know, I sold 90, $100 million worth of stuff over my career. And I, you know, I went from being poor and homeless to driving a Lexus convertible to being, you know, the king shit in the world. And so I have to ask, I have to ask, were you happy? Sure. I was scared every day. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. But I, w- I was happy. I was, you know, I, I loved my kids. I loved being a dad and a husband and all that. Now, my wife and I, we had our strife and we had our, we had our challenges. Mm-hmm which we wound up separating and getting divorced. 
that's where we went to depression and suicidal and it was horrible and really sick. And that's where, that's where my own self-development really took off. Well, how old, how old were you? It was 10 years ago. So I guess I was about 47, 48. Okay. 48. You know, we, I was separated. I was living in a, an apartment by myself. It was just really, really sad. My career was in the toilet. I couldn't figure anything out. I wasn't drinking, but I was just such, I was just in bad shape. And my climb out of that, I, you know, if I didn't have kids, I might have committed suicide, mm. but I just knew I didn't want to give them that legacy. Right. So I just kept digging. I was like, I am committed to my kids. And I kept digging and I kept digging and I kept digging. And I came up with this thing that I was going to run the Marine Corps Marathon to show my kids what you do when, you know, you're, you know, I was really, really sick also. I was going to show my kids what you do with tragedy as you turn it into a triumph. I said, I'm going to make a million dollars because I think I'm going to die anyway. So I'm going to leave kid money to my ex-wife and kids. I was kind of morbid at the moment, at the time. I was going to run the Marine Corps Marathon. I couldn't run a mile and I was going to give $60,000 to charity because I wanted to pay off, you know, whatever horrible thing I've done in the world to deserve, you know, being terrible. So those were the three things I committed to. And that year I wound up running the Marine Corps Marathon which was amazing. I had eight months to train. My coach, who I hired to train me, said, nobody can, you can't do that. He was right. I Were you a that. runner prior to that point? No, I couldn't run a mile. So I, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon, raised four or $5,000 for charity for that. I made the million dollars that year and I gave wow. $60,000 to charity. And what happened was, lo and behold, I was still alive. I was, my career was like on fire and I was doing good and I was 50 years old. And I remember being 50 years old and my ex-wife was doing better. My kids were doing good. So we were working through things. And then I decided to go on a retreat in Hawaii with this author that I met. Uh, his name was Alan Cohen. And he wrote a book, Are You As Happy As Your Dog? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Relax Into Wealth. And uh, he wrote a bunch of chicken soup with the soul. You know, he was part, part of that whole thing. Oh, wow. And, and he had a retreat in Hawaii. And I just, I, I signed up for the retreat. And I told my ex, I said, I haven't done anything for myself in years. I'm going to go to this retreat, this spiritual retreat in Hawaii. And Alan calls me and he says, hi, Mark, this is Alan Cohen. And I'm like, yeah, why is this famous author calling me? Uh, I don't know him. And he says, spirit, spirit told me to call you. I'm like, oh, great. Wait, was this pre-retreat or? This was pre-retreat. He says, spirit told me to call you. And I'm like, oh, great. What kind of wacky thing am I getting into? He's going to sell you something. And he says, spirit told me that you need to go to my coaching course and not this retreat. And I was like, what's coaching? And he says, you know, this is what coaching is. It's helping people get what they want to do. It's helping people get their lives in order, their businesses in order, and that kind of thing. And, I'm, and he says, and I, I said, I'm a sales guy, dude. I don't know coaching. I don't want to do coaching. Uh, but he says, you know, it'll help you with your, your relationships with your kids. It'll help you with your customers. You just, he says, and if you don't like it, I'll give you all your money back. Don't worry about it. But I just have to follow spirit. And I was like, screw it. Okay. So I started doing the class. And what I realized Wait, was... Wait, does that mean you didn't go to Hawaii? Well, part of... The, there was a retreat in Hawaii for this particular thing. Okay, okay. At first Thank you God. do the class, then you go to the retreat in Hawaii for the intensive, for the coaching. Okay. And halfway through, I got furious. I was so angry. And I was on the phone with all the other participants. I think there were 25 people in the class. And Alan says, how you doing, Mark? And I was like, I hate you. And I hate this. And I hate all of this. This sucks. And he's, you know, he, ha- he has me, you know, kind of work through it. And what I realized was I was so angry because what I had found was what I was supposed to be doing my whole entire life. Like th- I was born to be a coach. 
a life coach, an executive coach. I don't care what you call it. I wanted to be a rabbi when I was a little kid. I always wanted to be a teacher. The reason I was a great sales guy is because I coached every one of my customers and clients. It was because I can connect with people. It's I care about people's success. And I was like, how am I going to do that? You know, I I pay out $10,000 a month just to support all the people that I love in my life. How am I ever going to be a coach? Why did you even show me this? And I was talking to my ex-wife about it. And she says, I have been telling you for years that this is what you need to do. We just didn't know what it was. We didn't have a name for it. She says, I think you should do this. Can I just interject? I'd love for you to drill in a little bit on, on the anger. Like, is the anger regret or what, what, what is underneath? The anger, the anger was I didn't see how I could not, I could do it. I actually had, I just felt like, you know, I had an elderly mother who needed money. You know, my, my So parents. financially, it wasn't viable. Financially, no. it was ridiculous. It wasn't going to happen. It cost me $10,000 a month to keep my family afloat and then, you know, let alone pay for my own apartment. And, you know, so I just didn't think there was any feasible way I was ever going to be able to do what I wanted to do. I hated sales. I hated every minute of it. And my new coach, Steve Chandler, who is a really prolific author, he just said to me, do you really think that everybody in your life wants you to do something that you hate and that's killing you? You know, and I said, yeah, they all want my money. Like they all want me to take care of them. And I went to everybody and they were like, no, this is what you should do. I had a conversation with a guy in the UK today who is desperately trying to find his path, kind of sort of knows what it is. But also, I think the little voice in his head is saying the same thing. You can't make, his name's Jonathan. And he's like, Jonathan, you can't make enough money. Like, no. And, and your family will not, will not be okay with, this, with this, this direction. And so I think your story is like exactly parallel to his. He's got this little voice saying, no, no, no. You need to make more money. But that's everybody I talk to. So in my coaching, you know, everybody I coach, and, and, and by the way, the people that I work with, generally when co- coaches talk to people, they're like, so what is your heart's desire? What do you want to do? What do you want to go do? And they're like, I want to basket weave in Bermuda. And, you know, my people would be like, no, I have, I need health insurance and I got to pay bills. Right. So there's a, there's a happy medium. I don't know how to do a happy medium. I never have. I was either homeless or rich, right? Like I, right. I, I don't know how to do happy medium. So I quit my job, right? The funny thing was when I quit my job, hung out my shingle as a coach, my first six clients were all my customers from my sales career. Oh, funny. That told me something about why yeah. I was a successful sales guy because they all said, we don't even know what coaching is. Whatever it we're is, just, we're in because every, every lunch we ever had with you was all about us and our careers and all that stuff. So that's how that started. And then well, my journey for the next three years was traveling around the world, working with the absolute best coaches on the planet, sex coaches, business coaches, spiritual shaman, and you know, do, just doing everything I could to master this craft. This was the first time in my life I was going to be a master at something. I, want, I wanted to do my own work and I wanted to be able to bring something that's so I didn't know that. I didn't I didn't realize. So so your coaching capacity is an assimilation of multiple types of coaches and perspectives. Oh, I've sat yeah, I've I, I've sat with sex coaches and talked about, you know, how the female and male anatomy work and psyche and and I've also sat in business coaches meetings, you know, to learn that. And then I've also, you know, sat on the floor in the desert with shaman. So I, I have really, and I've done all my own work. So that's, that's, that's a, and, and if I never coached another person, that was worth it for me just to become free of who right. Mark was to who Mark could be. Right. So that, that journey was incredible. 
But now, you know, working, you know, finding out who I am, finding out what I do best, which is work with executives in glass buildings. So high-end entrepreneurs who, you know, generally my clients are either in glass buildings and new executives, which I help mature and help help them go from individual contributor to success through others and to leadership in the company. And the other half are seasoned entrepreneurs who generally have a portfolio business and they own a couple of businesses and they're overwhelmed. So people generally come to me either because they need to mature in their career or they're overwhelmed and they can't stand it. And usually they hear me on a podcast or they hear my podcast and I'm like, you know, then, and here's, here's where this actually dovetails with, with what you're trying to do with your podcast and what, and your writing and everything. Your book is, your book is basically mastering midlife, you know, from your point of view, it's just so incredible. We talk about it all the time, but you know, I, I, and I, I, I said this on stage one day, I couldn't believe it came out of my mouth. I thought the person who got put me on stage was going to be so pissed when I did this, but I was really upset. In fact, it was the morning my mother died. I went on stage the morning my mother died. Mm. And, I just, and I just got on stage and I said, you know, I think we have an unspoken agreement that the hustle and the grind and success is worth the drugs, the alcohol, the depression, the mental illness, and the chronic diseases. And we don't talk about it. And I'm here to talk about it because guys who look like me are killing themselves in record numbers and I'm tired of it. And I just... When I got off stage, the cameraman, and this was all caught on film, which is so cool, because that was when I realized mastering midlife, helping people who have hustled and grind their whole lives and are like, this wasn't it. This isn't it. You know, right. I followed Grant Cardone. I followed Gary Vaynerchuk. I did the career course. And why the f- am right. I not happy? Why, why am I, I actually right. miserable when there are people starving? And what I, what I believe is that, it, that it's just completely unnatural, but we've made a pact with the devil that it's okay to be divorced. It's okay to be sick. We'll pop more pills. It's okay to be, you know, wine connoisseur and craft beer connoisseurs when all that really is, is just numbing ourselves. Well, if I can insert in there, if, I think we've also contracted, or one of the terms in the contract is it's actually okay to not walk away from our children, but to not fully engage with them. And I, I'm guilty of that. When I was you know, t- in my 20s and 30s running a business, I gave my business everything I had and the, and the kids got the, the leftovers. I'm, I'm ashamed of it. I've apologized to all three of them multiple times. But uh, the contract, I think, includes that clause. Like it's actually, Always. it's okay to, to give your kids short shrift because you're supposed to, you know, Go go do battle with whomever. Can't tell you how many times I was working working a deal on the phone while I was at one of my kids' baseball games. Oh yeah, yeah. And my ex is going, he's up to bat, he's up to bat. I'm like, all right, all right, I'll I'll, I'll watch. You know, like it was horrible. But you know, again, I think I think this is so familiar and a challenge for many many people. But I think part of the problem is we look at it as binary. We look at it as either basket exactly. weaving in Bermuda or the contract with the devil. And there is no in between. So I now, I now, I'm now, I've been doing this long enough that I can see the arc happening with my clients. And it's usually about a year and a half arc. And I see a vision for them and they don't believe me. And I work with them and I work with them and we make changes and we make little incremental changes. And my, one, of my, one of my clients called me from his new multi-million dollar home in Florida. He says, Mark, he goes, look, he goes, look at my to-do list. It's empty. 
he goes, I feel so free to create and to do all these things. Now he runs four companies, right? We spent so much time when he, when he came to me, he was so overwhelmed with his to-do list. And I wrote this book called Only Tens, right? We talked about mm-hmm. that, where it's prioritization from the inside. And slowly I taught him what was his that should be on his plate and what shouldn't be on his plate, how to delegate, how to empower the people in his organization. So a year and a half later, he calls me and he goes, I'm free. And I was like, that's it. That's what I was waiting for. It took all that work, all that digging, all that training the people to take over things to now he's free to create. So he, not, so he didn't go basket weave in Bermuda. He's still wildly Running successful. For, right, right, right. Opening new businesses, helping other entrepreneurs, doing his charity work with his foundation, right? And living his life. He's lost all his weight. He's, you know, he's happy where he was miserable before. And over and over, I'm seeing that it is absolutely possible and preferable to be wildly successful and sane. Right, right. So you said something actually before we started the show about Mastering Midlife, which is the current podcast. And how it really applies to 20-year-olds, you know, 20-year-olds and six-year-olds. I mean, midlife is actually sort of a, not a misnomer, but talk a little bit about the audience you've built over the last year and a half and and what you've gleaned from those conversations. So, so the, the, demogra- the demographic I send out to advertisers and to people is, is you know, it's, it's people from 35 to 60. You know, generally they have kids, kids going to college, they have elderly parents. You know, they're that sandwich generation where it's just from the up top, the bottom, you know, their bodies are changing things, you know, dissatisfaction is coming in relationship is, is stressful, you know, yeah, how to thrive when the world asks the most of you like that's a tough time. But for me, the real definition of midlife is when you realize that the roadrunner that you've been chasing all your life may not be what you wanted. You've just been chasing a roadrunner because that's what you do. And then you find out that you're actually not even a coyote. So we're doing Wiley Coyote. And apparently so. <laughs> There's chinks in the armor. It usually comes in the form of illness, divorce, job loss, right? Right. Something happens and then you go, huh, I need to do something different. But I've met 25-year-olds who are like, no, this isn't it. For me, they're in midlife. Like they're, they've gone, oh, what I was designed to do, what I was conditioned to do, what I was told to do is not what I need to be doing. Whether it's work, relationship, who I am, how I dress, and, and that starts to fall away. And then midlife is, a, is this, Brene Brown calls it the unraveling. It's, it's unraveling. It's unlearning who you were to find out who you could be. And then it's about consciously creating yourself to be who you want to be. Just a related aside is my son, Emmett, who's 28, called me a couple of weeks ago pretty much unraveling. But but ultimately, the two-hour conversation ended up with me congratulating him for realizing early on. I mean, it, it, it took me, I, I really didn't start understanding that who I was, who I was being was not actually who I was until I was almost 40. And so I said to Emmett, I said, Emmett, you, you have a 12-year jump on me. You know, like, that's amazing at 28 that you realize that, you know, there's the real Emmett to go create or something. My son's doing. My son's doing it at twenty. Wow! So he's he's going to go to Israel, and he's you know he was a pothead in high school, and really kind of a goofball, and was really a little worried about him given my the addiction in my family, right. and now you know he's he's stopped all of that stuff, and he's he's Krav Maga instructor, but he's going to yeshiva in uh, wow. in Israel for a year. And the funny thing was, I said, you know, I said, what did I do that this is happening? Where did I go wrong? I was just joking. And he goes, maybe you went right, dad. Maybe it's because of you that I'm doing this. 
And it's really kind of beautiful that he's diving into his spirituality and amazing. He is at 20. At 20. At yeah. 20. So, as I said at the beginning, 150 interviews under your belt. What's the cliff note? What's the executive summary? What's the three things you'd say to my audience to help them find their way? You know, it's, it's funny because today's episode is the 14.5 things I've learned in 150 interviews. Oh, funny. I'm actually prepared for this question, which is kind of, which is kind of funny. So I would say, number one, you cannot do it alone. You need a posse. You right. must have a posse. You must cultivate friends. You must cultivate people you can talk to when you're scared, when you're lonely, when you don't know how to do something and people you can be there for when you need to get out of yourself. Or even if you're, if I can add to that, even when you, when you begin, when your motivation begins to ebb, you know, having a, having people around you that are on a similar path, not necessarily in the same place, I think serves as its own form of motivation. Yeah. So, so that's the one thing. The other thing I've learned is humanity hits everybody. So I've interviewed rock stars, NFL stars, NBA stars, you name it. I've, I've interviewed, and just a couple of days ago, I interviewed one of the leading leadership speakers in the world and he had just lost his dad and he was in a horrible mood. And he was so embarrassed to be on my podcast, just spewing all kinds of crap. He says, I'm sorry, Mark. He says, this isn't what you wanted for your podcast. I said, this is exactly what I wanted for my podcast. So what I learned is rock stars and and sports figures and singers and politicians and motivational speakers are all human. And we're never, ever going to shed our humanity. It's how do we deal with our humanity? How do we work with our humanity? That's the key. And I think midlife is a time. So that's, that's one of the other pieces. And, you know, God, I, I've got 14.5. So, so the general ones are uh, that and that mental health is more important than we think that we need to talk about mental health. All of us are, we're all suffering, especially during the coronavirus and the civil unrest and the politics and the, we're all suffering. And if, you, if you're not suffering, you're, most people I think are lying because, <laughs> you know, every conversation I have with anybody who gets away from the public, we're all suffering and there's no need. There's, there's just no, there's, there's no need to suffer. You can be in pain, you can be confused, you can have trouble with all this stuff, but you don't need to suffer. Well, I think part of that, I agree with that. I think part of that is, it kind of goes back to the posse or, or uh, what I call the tribe, the importance of having people around you with that circle of, of people, the importance of being able to share. And so, you know, for a lot of people, I think there's shame in sharing mental health issues, depression, anxiety, worry, fear. And I think a piece of the equation is, is learning. And it took me years to learn to be able to actually tell other people the truth about all those things, you know? And so I, I think, I think a part of the collective agenda for today's world is, is all of us or more of us getting more okay with just telling each other what's really going on, you know, because I think, I think you're exactly right. I think 99% of people in some form or another are struggling. Even the people that you met in North Carolina at the bar with no masks on, <laughs> there's a reason why they're not wearing masks and drinking profusely, you know? I, I saw a tweet that says, are we overreacting to COVID? And I said, and I, I answered the tweet and said, no, we're not overreacting to COVID. We're reacting exactly how our conditioning, our beliefs, our thoughts tell us to. We have been practicing all our lives to react exactly the way we reacted. And Maya Angelou says it best when she said, you know, we do what we do 
until we know better. When we know better, we do better. So our consciousness is there. So I can't fault anybody for the conditioning that they've had. 90% of my work is unraveling the conditioning that built the person who's sitting in front of me. I am nothing but an amalgamation of what my parents poured into me, the things that happened to me, the fact that I was molested, the fact that this happened, and then that puts together and then I defend it for the rest of my life with everything I got. This is Mark. This is who Mark is. This is who Mark needs to be. And this is what I want to show you. And what I've unraveled is now I talk about everything that's happened to me, everything that bothers me, all this stuff, and nobody can touch me. I am so vulnerable and so open that I am invulnerable. There is nothing anybody can say to me. There's nothing anybody can do to me that I haven't already experienced. And that has me feel safe in the world with, that is completely uncertain. And so the question I get when I share a not dissimilar story of my own evolution or growth is people ask the very blunt, how do you do that? <laughs> How do you learn to do that? How do you learn to become vulnerable? First of all, slowly, you know, you open, you open up this can of worms slowly. Sometimes it happens for you, like something embarrassing public happens and opens you up like a can opener. Right. right. And, you know, you lose a job and you're no longer the vice president of such and such and you don't know you're having an identity crisis. Right. Something happens and all of a sudden you just can't. But in fact, I remember my mother, my mother was a beautiful, beautiful woman, movie star, beautiful. And she got sick and she was put on prednisone. And so her face blew up. She lost her hair. And she's and one of, I remember one of the one of the few really lucid things she said, she says, people treat me different when I was beautiful and how I am now. It's a different world to live in, you know. That so I don't even know why that came up. Just interesting thought. But back back to what what do you do with this vulnerable? Oh, so it, that cracked her open for a moment because now she's living a different life. But for for me, what I teach people is one pad and paper, journaling, 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 journaling. I, I think I know the answer, but why why is journaling so important? Tim Ferriss would call it window washing. It's I find pen to paper. You tend to tell yourself the truth, right? You tend, to, you tend to, you, you, you know. And I teach people, and and if you want for your for your audience, I'll, I'm happy to share a video I have on how to journal effectively. It's called it, it's something that I took from Julia Cameron, which is morning pages, and it's I I write for 20 minutes or for three pages, and at first it's just you know I hate everybody, I hate myself, I'm stupid, I'm this, and I just get that shit out. Then it starts to get a little more emotionally intelligent and smart. And then by page three, this wisdom comes through. Spirit starts to talk to me. My inner self starts to talk. And I start to meet myself in the journaling. I start to learn who I am. I love that. The second is you go to workshops where it's safe to be vulnerable. You go someplace where, where they build a container where you can actually talk and you can actually say, you know, like in the, in the Mankind Project, they have this thing called cock talk where, you know, you sit and you talk about sex and men will talk about, you know, the inadequacies and their embarrassments and their, and you go to safe places where you can slowly, you know, being an AA was really a cool thing because that was a place where you can tell the yeah. truth. That's where, yeah, yeah. That's a head start. So you go yeah. find places and people that you can be a little bit vulnerable with and you just practice a little bit. You come out of your shell a little bit. Those are, for me, are the ways that you slowly put it. And then it's one conversation at a time. Someone will says, hey, do you want to come to that party? And you don't want to go to the party. Or you say, sure, I'll come to the party. And you're like, I don't want to go to the party. All right, this, uh, now you know I'm an introvert. And then how do, you, how do you not go to the party, right? So how do, you, how do you say, you know what? I love you, 
and I really don't want to come to the party. I'd rather be alone tonight. How do you have that one little conversation? How do you ask for what you want? How do you set a boundary? Those are all vulnerabilities. Setting a boundary, asking for what you want, having a preference, and then forgiving people and being kind to people are all ways of being vulnerable, just slowly, a little bit at a time. Yeah. And then it becomes addictive. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the idea of it, it takes time. It's, it's a slow process. You said the word practice. I think that's an, another really important point, which is this is not the flicking of a switch, right? You don't go from being not vulnerable to vulnerable by flicking a switch. You have to learn how to be vulnerable. Um, it took the, whatever decades it took to, to build this. So oh, yeah. You need, to, you need to dismantle it slowly to find out what's underneath each piece. I mean, my work, I don't know if I told you that, but my work took a solid 10 years to get from a pretty broken person to mostly who I am. And, and I mean, hard, hard work. So, but the, the other thing I was going to say about- um, well, what, made, what made you start that work? I hit what I, what I talk about in This Is It, the, my book, I hit what I call acceptable rock bottom, where I had three different things happen to me not in none in and of themselves that profound, but the combined effect was me realizing that I had no idea who I was and that the life that I was living didn't align with who I was, even though I didn't know who I was. And, and the three forces caused me to, I mean, the first step I took is I called a friend of mine and I said, I'm not okay with who I am. I don't know really who I am. I'm hiding in the suit of armor called CEO of a company. And I don't want to do it anymore. And, and I know you've, you work with a therapist. Can you, can you re- refer me, recommend? And so my first, my first little step was, was, was therapy. And peeking outside, peeking outside that armor. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really think the 10-year journey for me was, was learning how to get naked, like learning piece by piece. You know, I didn't take off all the armor right away, you know? It took me a couple of years to take the helmet off and then a couple of years to take the chain mail off and a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it took me a long time to get naked. And it's interesting, too, now that I am pretty naked. I mean, my wife thinks I'm like really naked. You still and I think you, you'll, you'll agree with this. You still have to. There's still a tendency to want to put armor back on every day. It's, it's the function of the ego. It's why, it's why we're constructed in the first place is to defend and create this thing called Mark, this thing called Chris every single day. So it's, it's, it's built into the operating system and to constantly practice stepping out of that operating system is a daily thing. So uh, one, one more, give us one more, one more of the 14.5. One more of the, uh, the 14.5. What's the 0.5? I was just, it was just a, it was just a joke because it's actually, it was actually only 12. And the last one I just wrote, and I can't count because <laughs> I named it before I named it before I, before I figured when I was doing the show notes, I was like, that's only 12. There's no 14.5. <laughs> but you know, there was, the, you know, in all these, in all these conversations, for me, the real, the real truth of the matter is, is that we're all free. And we have no idea. The old cliche that we're sitting in a jail cell with the door open and not knowing that the door is open until after you walk out and you go, holy shit, the door was open the whole time. And you will never know it and you will never believe me or believe anybody until you walk out right. and you go, oh my God, they were right. 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 And uh, that, that is my mission in life is if it, if it really boiled down to it is that we are all free. Once we realize that this construct that we call Mark, that we call Chris, that we call Fred, that we call Sally is a construct, 
and that we get to create whoever we want to be. And we may not be able to change the circumstances of our lives. We may be poor. We may be living in Afghanistan. We may, you know, we may be, there may be all kinds of circumstances that can't be changed ever or right away or whatever. But there's something that, that's internal that can shift. And once you find that power to be able to shift what's going on inside, nothing outside of you has the same reality ever again. Ever again. This COVID, this COVID thing did not have the same reality for me that it did for everybody else. None of this. I still care. I, I actually tripled down how much I work and help people. I didn't disengage. I'm not Pollyannish. I'm not stupid. But it didn't affect me the way it affected everybody else. And it's because of that understanding that I have spent 58 years defending, building, making people see a Mark Silverman that I want them to see. And I have figured out finally that I don't care what you see. Like there's something deeper that whatever is a Mark Silverman that is so much more important and and, and is, is living this life. And this whole robot with software is is not worth defending and putting every ounce of energy I have into every day. And now all that spare energy goes into writing and creating and coaching and, and loving and caring. And, and yes, I do get wrapped around the axle and I get confused and I get angry. And, you know, Monday morning, I was just, you know, when we talked about, you know, when I went out into the world and nobody was wearing masks and there was 75 year old people just standing in the buffet line. And I was just, you know, my whole body went nuts over that. So it's not like I'm not human. Right, right, right. But I know how to I know what's going on there and I know how to bring myself back. Yeah. So you you said the word freedom and I gave a talk recently. I don't think I told you this. It was it was crazy. I was invited to speak by Oracle to thirty two hundred employees via Zoom. So wow. <laughs> That's a tough crowd too. Yeah. Talk about talk about a bunch of egos that are really solidly in place. Yeah, although this was Oracle Latin America, and it's a very different it's a very different way of being. It's a very very unique part of the of what is a very big company. Anyway, there was one part of my talk that that I just one slide, and it had the word fear and the word free, and it had the word fear. And I, and I said, you know, and, I, and that's certainly been my experience, that the way to find freedom, the way to realize that the jail cell doors actually open is to, is to understand that fear, the fears we all have, which are many, are actually choices. That, that, and that's how I've sort of come to, I guess, embrace it or, or understand it is that fear and courage are choices, that they're not done to us. They're not baked into us. They are actually choices. And so the moments in my life where I feel fear, which are, you know, fine, legitimate, it's okay. I can have a conversation with myself and say, is that going to be your choice today? Are you going to choose fear, which is fine, no judgment, or are you going to choose courage? And what, what I've done in the 10 years of my work is is get stronger in terms of my ability to choose courage. And in choosing courage, I end up being free. I end up not caring that I'm naked, not caring what others think, because I am actually okay with who I am. Anyway, I just think it's like, it's a funny, the idea that fear and free are similar, you know, in their, in their structures. And yet, I think you got to go through one to get to the other, I think. Anyway, well, listen, pal, I think we could talk all day. We should do this again very soon. <laughs> I love you for spending an hour with me. I love you for sharing all that you have shared with me and that whoever is listening. I encourage everybody who is listening to check out Mark's podcast, to check out his 
book to call him if you need coaching. He's a wonderful human being and he can help you in a, in a bunch of different ways as he's helped me in a bunch of different ways. So Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to provide some value, which I hope I did. You did for sure. Okay, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.